Hey fam, welcome to the Free Trail Podcast. Of course, I am your host, Dylan Bowman. Always grateful for your time and attention. Glad to have you here today. Joined by the 2022 UTMB champion, the American Trail superstar living in France, Katie Scheid returns for her second appearance on the program. The first time Katie was here, she was just an up and coming, lesser known quantity on the global professional trail running landscape. Now she returns to the show as a household name, a UTMB champion with still infinite potential to continue advancing her already incredible career. Of course, this conversation is dominated by talk of her victory at UTMB, but we also spent time chatting about her previous two finishes at the race and the ways in which they informed her performance this year. We talked about her recent coaching change and how that adjustment impacted her preparation and her feeling of being in potentially the best shape of her life. And of course, we talk about all the details of the incredible win, the back and forth competition with Marianne Hogan, and what it means to her to be part of ultra history as a UTMB champion. I am super happy for Katie. I'm really impressed by her as a person and as an athlete, and I'm glad she was willing to come give us the full story here on the pod. As usual, a big thank you to Speedland, the presenting sponsor of the Free Trail Podcast. Without saying too much, we are in the final weeks of the SLHSV, the second shoe in the Speedland arsenal uh, before we move to pre-order of the forthcoming third model, whose name I can't reveal yet. We've been working on it for the last six or eight months. Speedland, of course, takes a super novel approach to their footwear model, offering only one shoe at a time, made in small quantities and without compromises. And when they sell out, they become pieces of history. So for the shoe collectors out there, the sneaker heads in the trail world, go get yourself a pair of the SLHSV before it is too late and they disappear forever by visiting runspeedland.com. We are going down to NorCal next week to shoot some stuff for the new model. So make sure you keep your eyes on the Speedland Instagram handle for more updates coming soon. Also, a quick reminder about the Gorge Waterfalls race in 2023. The 50K lottery is open now, closing this Friday, September 16th, with the drawing coming the next day. Saturday, September 17th. So this is your last chance to enter the 50K lottery over on Ultra Sign Up for Gorge Waterfalls. The 100K and the newly added 30K will open for registration on Sunday, September 18th. And those races will not have a lottery, but we do expect them to sell out quickly. So make a note for yourself if you want to join us for spring in the Pacific Northwest and all the fun free trail, daybreak racing activities happening peripheral to the races themselves. There is a link to everything in the show notes to learn more. Hope to see you at Gorge Waterfalls. A quick plug also for fantasy trail events happening this weekend, the Pikes Peak Ascent as part of the Golden Trail World Series and the Run Rabbit Run 100. Both races are super interesting. I'd venture to say that the Pikes Peak Ascent is one of the deepest and most compelling fields in the whole world this entire season as part of the Golden Trail series. So go to fantasy.freetrail.com and put your picks in for a chance to win some free trail swag. And then finally, 
Quick plug, next Monday, September 19th, Free Trail will be announcing some changes that are important for our future. I'm calling this chapter two of Free Trail's existence, a line of demarcation in our short history. So if you care about what we do, stay tuned for news on our continued evolution next week. Okay, on to the show. Please welcome the great Katie Scheid. Katie Scheid, welcome back to the podcast, you champion. How are you? Good, thanks. Yeah, I don't think I've been on the podcast since it was called The Well. So yes. I'm <laughs> back ago. on the vintage podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, an OG. Yeah, you can wear that badge <laughs> of honor for forevermore. But welcome back. And of course, you're only 10 days removed from your phenomenal UTMB victory. Just such an impressive performance, a highlight, I'm sure, in your life, something I'm incredibly jealous of. So maybe just first tell us how these last 10 days have gone, any anecdotes that you can provide as to how this has potentially changed your life personally and athletically? No, I mean, nothing crazy. Still the the typical YouTube, like ultra race fallout where you're just left with like piles of dirty things, all unorganized, trying to put everything in the car. Plus, uh, my partner, Jama also like did most, uh, he did like half the race, um, unfortunately, but still the same amount of stuff and one car. And yeah, that's always a mess, uh, to get into the car and then get out of the car, then get in the house, all the laundry, <laughs> the flasks, like everything double. Um, I did a whole lot load of laundry that was just socks. Uh, that, that was notable. Nice. Nice. But how are, how's like the acute recovery been? And like, are you guys back home and is it difficult to kind of readjust to sort of the quiet, slow pace of life after that? What must've been just a wild experience? Yeah, actually the recovery is going a lot better than I expected. And from what I've experienced in past years, and I'm not sure if that's because I have more experience. So like my body's more used, used to these efforts. Um, or if it's because I ran for four fewer hours than past years, or because I just have like better mental energy this time, probably a combination of all those things. Um, and yeah, it's been nice to be back where it's quiet. And, um, some people in the village know, like they were following the race and they sent me messages and were excited about it. But uh, like today I just went for a short walk and a woman who lives in the village uh, asked if I was lost. And this is a village of less than 50 people. So she didn't even know who I was and I live here. So <laughs> is that refreshing for you after, you know, coming yeah, I from... was so happy. <laughs> yeah. Cause like you'll never be able to walk through Chamonix again without people, you know, asking for selfies and autographs. And here you are back in your home village of 50 people and they don't even know who you are. Yeah. It was That's great. Cool. <laughs> All right. So let's go back in, in time a little bit and talk about your history with the race, just in case there's people out there who are unfamiliar, you finished UTMB twice, sixth and eighth in 2019, 2021, respectively. 
I actually watched your finish from 2021 and it looked like you were suffering, <laughs> suffering mightily. Um, so maybe just like remind people of, of your history with the race and um, sort of like what those two experiences left you wanting here in 2022 and in what ways they were unsatisfying. Yeah, I would say both were very unsatisfying. The first, uh, I think, matched the amount of preparation that I had when I look back. I'm like, yeah, I, I wasn't ready for that. Um, and I think it was a reasonable result for what I had done to prepare for it. Uh, and last year was just really not what I wanted at all, like very far from what I wanted. Um, maybe a situation where I should have stopped in the middle, but just was too stubborn and just, just marched it out. Um, but yeah, I was also pretty sick the week before the race last year. Um, and I don't think I really admitted that to myself or to other people. I remember texting the, the girl who was going to crew for me, like on the Sunday before the race saying, uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to start the race. I feel super sick. I can't breathe through my nose and yeah, I'm just not totally sure. And I think I just kind of put it aside and forgot that had happened. And I think it kind of took a lot out of me and I was just wrecked on the start line already. So maybe how did those two experiences inform your approach this year? I mean, obviously the first one you said you hadn't really prepared appropriately. So you probably tried to, uh, you know, sort of atone for that mistake in 2021 illness and 2021 what did you adjust if anything leading into 2022 uh, I think everything like after every race I make a list of all the things that I like think that I want to change and it's never just one thing that makes the difference it's like trying to work on everything at the same time which isn't a very good science experiment because you never learned exactly what it was but <laughs> you only get to race so many ultras so you kind of have to throw everything out <laughs> out at once um so yeah I worked on yeah finding better strategy for eating more uh I tried to get on the course more this year because the downhills I found the downhills on the trail at UTMB really wreck my legs because I'm not used to running downhill so fast because the trails are so clear and here they're way more technical. So when you're running downhill, you're just, you just can't go as fast. And I find muscularly that it changes quite a bit. That's um, really interesting. I also, Keep yeah. Going. Um, I also switched coaches in December. Um, so I started working with Jason Coop in, yeah, or maybe end of November. Um, so that was a change. And I think it, that also was, well, that was clearly a big change. And I think it brought more structured running to my schedule before I was doing a lot more biking, a lot more like I, what people would say is cross training. Um, and I think I, I trained actually fewer hours this year, but more running. So just kind of shifting. I was going to ask you about efforts. that as a Jason Coop yeah. disciple myself. <laughs> and let's get to this. Let's talk more about the, the training and specifically like how Jason Coop is sort of informed or adjusted what you had been doing 
a little bit later, but I had a similar experience when I started working with him way back in 2013, where my overall volume went down, but the quality went way up. The specificity went way up and I ended up getting a lot better as an athlete, but let's get to that in a sec. I think first you just mentioned like the course at UTMB. And I think this is maybe an important thing to touch on just to set the context for listeners. I was doing the commentary on the English channel overnight. And one of the things I was just trying to convey is the unique challenge of UTMB between the depth of competition, the atmosphere, the challenging course design and sort of the sequence of the climbs and descents. And you just mentioned that the descents were a place where you recognized you needed to get better. Maybe for the people who haven't had the joy of racing UTMB yet in their careers, give your perspective about what makes it unique, what makes it special, what makes it challenging as somebody who's now finished three times, including a victory. Yeah, it's really, if you can run, it's really fast. Um, if you're at the front of the race, it's, I feel like it's advertised as like a mountain race and it's, in my opinion, it's not, it's a like fast, but, um, a fast race with a lot of uphill but i wouldn't really describe it as like a mountainous race um there are parts where it's where it can get cold and in bad weather it's yeah it's cold and ex like a bit exposed but not yeah the trails are huge uh they're traveled by millions of tourists in the summer um i mean the whole part from chamonix to lake Antamine, which is the first like 30k you're on like ski, like ski access roads, dirt roads. You're running through like a mini golf course. You're not in the mountains at all. You're running like you're running through villages and yeah. <laughs> but Katie, I mean, like if you screw it up, it tends to go sideways in a, in a dramatic way as we've seen yeah, for with sure. a lot of people. And you've experienced that to some degree yourself. Yeah, yeah. So it, yeah, I think not, that's the trick is like managing yeah. you're like, okay, this is really fast and managing that. And then being able to get to these big climbs in the middle of the night where you are more on your own, like that part from, yeah, from Col du Bonhomme, well, from Le Chapeux to Cormier, you're pretty much on your own. There's really, there's one aid station basically. Yep. Uh, well, there's two, but the other one, yeah, it's kind of useless. And yeah, you're really on your own and you also have to be comfortable being like, okay, there are no lights anywhere. I'm like totally alone. Um, and you, yeah, you have to manage those, both of those worlds kind of. Yeah. I think for the professionals, it's just, a, it's incredible to watch just like how difficult it is to thread the needle and get the race. Right. And I mean, even in victory, I'm sure you don't look back and view the race as perfect. And we'll get to that in a sec, but I don't know. What I'm getting at is that UTMB obviously is like the most important hundred mile race in the world. And you said that, yeah, it can be viewed as sort of like a faster mountain race. But my feeling is that that formula of just like the depth of competition, the wild sort of European mountain sport environment with thousands of fans and spectators, and then just the way the course is set up with the fast beginning and the really challenging last 50 K is that it just leads to tons of attrition, tons of like death marches. And it's just a very yeah. hard race to get right. So now third time was a charm for you. So let's go back yeah. and talk about your training a little bit more. Um, you mentioned, you know, you 
made the adjustment, brought on Jason Coop as your coach. Talk about that decision, what motivated that change and what benefit have you seen as a result? Um, so the motivation for the change was actually, I was thinking about changes, changing coaches last June, um, because the coach that I was working with before just, um, didn't have as much time. And he kind of saw, I think he saw, we, we saw together that he didn't have as that much experience in ultra running specifically, who's coming more from triathlon. And he saw that maybe he wasn't the best person for the job anymore. And like, maybe I needed to get a bit more specific. And so, yeah, he kind of said, I think it's a good idea if you look for another coach. And I also felt it was a good idea. And yeah, I got in touch with Coop and got on board and um, told him (laughs) that UTMB was the goal again. And then promptly told him that I was uh, wanted to do a full schemo season. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> on top of that so I gave him kind of a project <laughs> right the puzzle the yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so specific things that changed you know you've already mentioned that maybe the volume went down a little bit but maybe provide a lens or a picture as to how that kind of onboarding happened and sort of like how things changed immediately in your training and, and sort of what benefit maybe you've seen with a different approach. Yeah, I think right off the bat, I was like, wow, this is not a lot of volume. And I kind of wasn't sure if, if he understood how much volume I was used to doing I was a bit nervous like okay you're only telling me to do one activity per day like normally I do two activities per day but at the time I was still trying to finish my thesis and so I said okay I'm just gonna like put 100% trust in this because it also helps me finish my thesis if I only do one activity then I can have like the whole afternoon to work a bit more efficiently so I just kind of went with it um even though at times I was yeah, I was a bit like, I don't know if this is enough. Um, but I finished my, I was able to finish my thesis. So that was exciting. Um, but yeah, so a lot, once I shifted back to running in the spring, it was quickly just only running and no biking. And I just kind of like let that be. And cause I wanted to try something new. That was the whole point of changing coaches. So I was like, you know what, this is my chance to try something new. And I trust him a hundred percent. So I'm just gonna be a good student and <laughs> follow the plan. And if I see that this summer things aren't going how I want, then maybe next year I would, you know, bring up new ideas, but it worked well for me. I, I could see it worked well for me at Valderon, the hundred K I did in um, the beginning of July. And so then after that, I was like, okay, I, I, feel like I'm in the maybe the best shape I've ever been in so I, I'm confident with this yeah so two questions then number one did you struggle with the buy-in a little bit because I recall when I first started working with Coop way back in 2013 and went through the same process where I was like wait I'm supposed to take a rest day every week I would like secretively sneak runs in on Mondays which is always <laughs> my rest day and like not upload them to training peaks just because I like wanted to keep doing it. And it took me a little while to mature to the point where I did buy in fully and took his word as gospel. 
And then the second question is maybe provide a, a, like a quick example of what a critical session looked like leading up to the race as somebody who's a coop disciple, I could probably guess myself, but I'd be interested to hear. So take that however you want the, the buy-in and the example. Yeah. I think at first the buy-in was hard because I had been more in the like triathlete mindset of like, okay, I have to do like at least 20 hours a week or it's not a real training week. Um, and then when I was like, Oh, okay. He's just putting a few hours every day or like, it was skiing. So it was a bit, you can do a bit more volume because there's more, yeah, there, there, it's not an impact sport. And, uh, with the downhill, it's not aerobic then, but anyway, um, yeah, I actually didn't have a rest day once a week. So somehow I made it to another level. <laughs> he knows I'm soft, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, moving into Valderon, I think the, sessions where I felt like I progressed the most was in the like tempo run like four by ten four by twelve it's my favorite um, workout favorite workout. yeah it's so hot well the first one I remember so in the past I also trained really based on heart rate and so I'd really just be looking at my heart rate a lot um and then when everything moved to like perceived exertion I kind of Every time I would have a new like block, I would kind of freak out and be like, I don't know what a seven is. Like, what is an eight? I don't know. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was always interesting to like start a workout and be like, I don't even know what I'm really supposed to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, when but then I... I, prog- I found myself progressing really fast and I, at the end of, yeah, after doing a bunch of those workouts, I, w- I would go for just like a normal run and be like, wow, I, I'm so, I'm so much more relaxed than normal on this part of trail that I run on, you know, once a week, twice a week. Um, yeah, that was and what a great <laughs> feeling that is. So point yeah. of personal curiosity too, when I first started working with Coop and still to this day, I do the vast majority of my intensity going uphill. And that was the thing for me that I think sort of helped me to accelerate my improvement sort of in the early parts of my career when I was still a very inexperienced runner and gave me this similar feeling that you just described of all of a sudden three or four weeks down the road, I just feel like so much fitter and so much more relaxed on my recovery days or endurance days. Is that the same for you? Were you doing most of your intensity or your intervals going uphill? Yeah. And I actually did all of like my VO two max intervals. So like the shorter stuff, um, I did all that on skis. So I didn't do any of that running, um, because I was, I raced quite a bit this winter on, uh, in schemo. And so, yeah, we just, and it, it is a shorter effort. So we just took it as an opportunity to like use those efforts to prepare those races, which kind of matched the effort. Um, and then switch to like the tempo run phase when I was back to running. Sweet. So cool. Well, yeah, I think just a good lesson for people of just like the benefit of switching it up sometimes and, you know, recognizing when you need to change something, I think after two UTMBs where it didn't go the way that you envisioned having the self confidence and self-awareness to know that you needed to change something. And for your former coach to have that same self-awareness and 
now looking back, it probably feels like one of the smartest decisions you've ever made. Um, mm-hmm. So let's let's talk about your season a little bit. I, I chatted with you a couple months ago after your win at the Valderan 100K. But and you've mentioned now that you were doing a lot of skiing in the winter. But I thought you mentioned to me that it was like a historically dry winter where you guys live. And therefore, I thought you didn't spend as much time on skis. So maybe talk about your your winter training on skis and and maybe if that dryness um, impacted the level or the amount of volume that you were doing running through the winter. Like, were you running at all or were you only skiing? Yes. So (laughs) we decided, I think around this time last year that we wanted to do a, a, like a real schemo season. And I was able to get in touch with the folks at USA schemo and, um, do some world cup races or I had them in the calendar. So I was pretty excited about the winter and then it didn't snow, uh, like at all, (laughs) which Actually, for schemo training, if you really want to do schemo training, unfortunately, not. It's actually better because we were forced to ski in the resort. So in France, you can ski uphill in all the resorts, and so I was actually in the resort skiing uphill. Like, I think I only skied from the house one time, and then I put a hole in my ski the one time I tried because we just didn't have any snow. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, we barely skied off piste. But the, the only hard part was that when I would get to a race and then have to ski off piste um, in the downhills, I had we we hadn't done it at all because we had just been skiing up and down in the resort. So that was really hard. Um, but we did like kind of go on some mini not vacations, but like ski. We went and stayed in other places where there wasn't snow. snow. Yeah. Yeah. And I was running, uh, my lowest volume was zero hours per week of running, (laughs) but it was supposed to be around two. (laughs) And then I, yeah, we moved it up like progressively towards the spring. As you were getting ready to transition to the running shoes. So then in the spring, I know you were planning to do the Madeira Island ultra trail but had a bit of a false start due to COVID. And again, I want to talk more about COVID later on because I know German in a case of terrible timing picked up the, the bug in Chamonix. Um, but what happened in Madeira and, and maybe meditate on if that setback was potentially beneficial in the long run, looking back now. Yeah. So right before Madeira, I had some friends visit from the U S <laughs> and they brought us COVID, <laughs> which is Typical funny. Americans. We, God, we're so we irresponsible. <laughs> we never have people visit and we spend, I mean, yeah, we're, we live like a pretty isolated life and it, yeah, it just so happened that two weeks before Madeira, we had some friends visit and uh, ended up with COVID and had to call it on the race. Um, but in the end, it did help me finish my thesis in time. So I can thank my friends for that. <laughs> um, and it also kind of changed the start of our season. So, yeah, we couldn't do Madeira, but I because I had my thesis defense planned in June, I just said, okay, I'm, I'm not going to try to like replace this with anything. I just am going to finish it, my work. Um, there's still the rest of the year and I really want to just get this done. So it's out of the way. 
And so I ended up doing the, the marathon race at the maxi race because we were already there for the TNF athlete week for the trail week. Uh, and that was just a nice start to racing again. It's like a race I know and lots of people I know and yeah, kind of like in my comfort zone. Um, yeah. And Jarmal chose some other races as well. And that kind of meant that Valderon was our first, well, for me, it was my first long race since UTMB the previous year. So it'd been like 10 months. Yeah. I would actually kind of like to talk about the calendar construction thing a little bit, but maybe first, um, let's talk about the PhD thing because I think this is interesting. I remember when we did our first podcast, you know, whatever that was, maybe two years ago, you were working on it. And so you've sort of been in the thick of this educational process period of your life for a while now. Uh, remind people what that was about. And if, you know, now with it sort of being completed in the rear view, any uh, valuable lessons that have come from it? Um, yeah, so I was working on my PhD at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich, uh, Switzerland, and I was able to work remotely, uh, like at the end of that, um, once I'd finished all my lab work. And I was uh, studying the effects of the 2015 Gorka earthquake on landsliding. Um, that's a really general overview. You can look into more in details. Nepal, if you'd like. right? Yeah. Yeah. In Nepal. In Nepal. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So I had planned the defense for June and it was getting pretty tight with when I needed to turn in all the, the written documents. It was actually due like right after Madeira. So somehow in my head, I told myself I'd be able to go race and like, during my tapering while in Madeira, I would be able to like finish this, which looking back is like, there's no way I was going to be able to do that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, in the end, it was good that we didn't go because I spent those two weeks just writing every day, all day. And yeah, I got it done and was able to defend like the week after the maxi race and yeah kind of close that chapter which close was chapter. just a huge relief that's so cool so maybe big question now I mean you just won UTMB man like and you're one of the best athletes in the world like you're a pro athlete and now you have this PhD what do you what do you think about your long-term future I mean like what inspires you in terms of maybe putting that education to use while also maintaining your life and career as a pro athlete? Yeah, I see my education as something I can still put to use without necessarily being a geologist in, in an office. Um, I think a lot of us through the course of like higher education, you learn so much more than just whatever small topic you're studying. Like you learn how to set goals and how to organize yourself and how to communicate. And um, I think those skills are more valuable than the tiny niche topic that I spent six years being an expert on. And yeah, those are things I'll apply to my life for sure. And I also chose to pursue a PhD, not because I really wanted a PhD, but just because I loved um, 
being in an academic setting and being around those people who are passionate about learning and about asking questions. And yeah, it's the type of people that I just, that were all, I always found easy friendships in the, in those groups. Uh, and that's something I value from, from the many years, um, after high school, um, from college and my master's degree, and then finally in Zurich. So yeah, those are things I'll move forward with, but I, I don't plan to stay in academia or work in a geologic like career yeah. <laughs> specifically. Well, optionality is a good thing and potentially <laughs> this knowledge will become you know valuable like you can sort of have use your platform as an athlete to spread the message of things that you learn or that are important in the geological world maybe <laughs> if that's inspiring you um so let's i want to go back to sort of the calendar construction thing because i think this is interesting and potentially informative to the audience so madeira was on the docket but got thwarted due to covid so you mentioned that you did the maxi race as a way to sort of kick off the running season and then you did the valderan 100k so maybe talk about and maybe this was something that you and jason coop discussed in detail but obviously utmb was the goal so maybe provide a little bit of perspective as to how you think about building your season towards those a goals in this case UTMB and specifically like if Valderan was on the schedule or if you added it and based on the adjustment with Madeira. Yeah. So I had actually already decided all my races before I started working with Coop. So, um, he like approved them, I guess, but it was really, um, me and Jarmal's decision. Um, and for Madeira, we, had always seen it as the most appropriate ultra race to do after a schema season, like right coming off a of schema season, because it is just so much hiking and stairs and poles. And as long as you can get some downhill legs in a little bit before it kind of works to just come off the schema season. Well, in theory, we actually haven't <laughs> done it yet, <laughs> but in theory, you see like some of the ski, some of the people who like actually live in the snow are able to perform there. Yeah. So that was the goal for Madeira. And then Valderon, I decided because I was in the Pyrenees for a schema race and I was thinking, wow, I've only been here one time and it's this whole mountain range that I don't know at all. And it would be nice to just do an ultra that's not in the Alps just to have a change. Um, and when we had planned the season, Jarmal still wasn't, uh, it still wasn't clear if Jarmal was able to enter the United States because that didn't, op the borders didn't open until November, I think. So we were like, okay, we're definitely just going to stay in Europe the whole summer just to be safe and no. not have plans canceled. So yeah, I, I saw Valderan, uh, Valderon because it was listed as like a UTMB major. And I thought, okay, well, maybe they'll be kind of, a good group of competition there and it's a place I want to go. And I heard it was really technical and like really in the mountains. And it's like, great, that's what I want. I want to do a race that I'm excited to be at. And also the hundred K distance, I just felt worked well for me in the past, having, having that gap. 
Well, I never did that well at UTMB, but in theory, it had seemed like it should work well. <laughs> yes, yeah. And it was like six or seven weeks before UTMB? Yeah, I think it was seven weeks before. Mm-hmm. And you smashed it there. I mean, again, I was doing some of the English commentary, so I got to watch a bunch of your race, and you looked really solid. You won by a big margin, and that was probably a critical piece of the preparation towards... UTMB. So maybe in this line of conversation about calendar construction, did you feel that that was the sort of the perfect distance and the perfect timing to do hundred K leading up to UTMB? And, and then maybe also just talk about how you felt about that performance and, and how you managed the seven weeks in between, because I think that's probably, you know, not an obvious thing to get right. Like there has to be some consideration put into some acute recovery followed by, you know, slowly build up and then a few sort of critical weeks and workouts leading into UTMB. So maybe tell us about the the Valderan race, the recovery, and then the the time in between. Yeah, the race itself was great. I was I was really happy to be there and I really liked the course um because it was I can get pretty cynical about the UTMB course because I think I've just spent too much time on it. But I was just happy that it was like a real single track trail where there was rocks and you had to actually look down. And um, yeah, it just felt like the trail running that that I like the most. And I didn't know the area at all and I didn't know most of the course. So it was really like just a new experience. Um, And I had heard that the second woman was pretty far behind me, even towards the beginning of the race. So that wasn't a stressor, which I think gave me an opportunity to kind of do a race and still race because I didn't want to like, I don't do training races. I don't, I don't really think that's possible. Um, And so when I learned that the second woman probably wasn't going to be someone I would be racing like close by with, I was like, okay, then my only goal is to try to see how far I can get on the overall ranking. Um, which I think mentally you say that, but then it's, it's, you're still a bit more relaxed than you would be if the second girl's breathing down your neck. So I think in the end, it made the recovery a little bit easier because mentally I wasn't as fried I was able to manage my effort, like still racing, trying to be as far to the front as I could, but without the like stress feeling. And I think that's what can kind of kill you after a long race if you're yeah, in that headspace for so long. So I actually recovered much faster than I had expected. Um, and in the past, I'd normally taken like a whole week off after an ultra of really just doing nothing. And I was never really sure if that was the best way to go, because sometimes when you come back from that whole week completely off, you just feel like even worse because you've just been like sitting on the couch for a week. So this time I had like a bit more activity, very easy, but just like a bit more moving. And I think it helped. I think it helped me a lot. Just be, yeah, get back to, to running more quickly. Yeah. And then in those seven weeks, um, I think I just did like two kind of blocks of long runs. Um, one was on the UTMB course and one was here at home. Yeah. So, yeah. 
so it, it launched you forward rather than set you back. Um, yeah. And I think it was also nicely timed because I was able to really use it as like, okay, what do I need to improve from this race going to UTMB? Um, I have seven weeks to like implement these changes if I need changes. Yeah. And I think it, it's good to have kind of that memory fresh. Uh, yeah. 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 Great. And at least like also the confidence and validation of like, okay, the fitness is there. Like, just don't mm-hmm. screw it up. Like you don't have to chase fitness or panic train or anything like that. Just sort of keep sort of crossing the T's and dotting the I's, so to speak. So before we get to the race itself, one of the things I'm curious about is if you arrived in the Chamonix Valley, feeling like you were ready for a truly great performance because i think you know at least in my career and then for a lot of athletes they start to develop an intuition about their performances before they happen i'm wondering if that was the case for you before utmb um i knew that i was in really good shape um and i think i like wrote coop a comment in some run before like maybe a few weeks before saying like even if everything even if I like totally explode and go down in flames, like I'm in the best shape I've ever been in. And I wanted to remind myself that so that if I look, if I had a horrible race, something crazy happened, I wanted to remember that like I had felt like that. And so when I got, when we got to Chamonix, like, I don't know, I think I felt a bit more calm than in past years. Cause I kind of knew the drill and what we needed to do. And we're, we're pretty good about um, saying no to things and really protecting our time. Uh, around the race and yeah it, it everything was great <laughs> until thursday <laughs> yeah so you're and, leading me into my next question so keep going <laughs> and then on thursday we learned that somebody in our house had tested positive for covid and i immediately called um coop and like crying and like freaking out yeah. and was like, I have no idea what to do. I thought everything was perfect in place. I felt good mentally. And then this like curveball was thrown at me. So he showed up with some self-tests. I made sure I was still negative. And then I moved to his place with the, like kind of the CTS group. And that was really hard because I was, had been staying in this house with people who were there to support me and Jamal and it was just really hard to be like okay now I'm leaving you all thanks for being here bye (laughs) and that's really hard but I kept trying to remind myself that like this is maybe the one day of the year that I can be super selfish and I need to be super selfish and that yeah it's it was really it was pretty painful yeah I mean Coop saw everything uh I'm sure there was like some frantic energy too, because it's only the day before the race. And you're at that point, you're wanting to just kind of completely settle into a meditative trance and make sure that your final gear adjustments are taken care of and then basically just lay in bed. So that curveball must have been really unwelcomed. And so explain what happened with Germain. So he didn't come to Coop's house with you and he ultimately, it seems like from his posts caught 
COVID again, right? Because I mean, ultimately, you know, to cut to the chase, he dropped out of the race like halfway through. Yeah. So his, the person who was testing positive, his wife was doing Jarmo's um, aid stations. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so he didn't, he just felt like it was better to stay there and be in a set, like there was, a, it was actually quite a big house. So he could be pretty separate and then just wear a mask when he went downstairs because he really needed her. Like she always does his aid stations. Mm-hmm. So we felt like it would hurt him more to like risk leaving and not have that um, part of his race structure. And what he told me later, which he didn't tell me at the time, was that he actually had kind of started feeling a little bit sick. Mm. And so he then thought, okay, maybe it's better if we're not even together because then maybe I could give it to Katie or or maybe I was sick and I could give it to him. So he kind of just like let me go and then tried to protect himself the best he could. But he was already not, he was a bit skeptical. He was still testing negative, but he was like, I feel like, I have some symptoms. Well, and he did. Yeah, he did get a test. He was testing negative on the auto test. And then when he got a real test in the pharmacy, like on his drive back from Cormier, where he dropped, he he tested positive. So, well, man, he did the right thing. I mean, what a great foresight to have. I mean, obviously it ruined his race, but now you have a UTMB victory to show for it. If you guys would have, stuck together for that final 24 hours who knows maybe your race would have been screwed both your races could have been screwed so yeah i'm just so bummed we're still dealing with this nonsense man like sabrina stanley before the race and then tim tollefson texted me a picture of his positive covid test the day after the race after he dropped out it was just like gosh man the free trail podcast is brought to you by gnarly nutrition are you tinkering with your race day nutrition strategy Are you finding that the nonstop consumption of energy gels and chews leaves you with intense taste fatigue and sugar overdose? Well, I have some advice for you, something I've done for years now. That is, drink your calories. I've tried everything on the market and I am here to tell you that not all drink mixes are created equal. The Gnarly Fuel 2.0 drink mix is by far the best that I've tried for both taste and energy supply. Fuel 2.0 is the bomb, especially the cherry cola flavor. That is my absolute favorite. It's all the carbohydrates, the electrolytes, the amino acids to power you along your trail adventures. Two more things that make it amazing. One, it is NSF certified for sport, so you don't have to worry about unintentionally ingesting any banned substances. And two, they come in both multi-serving bags and single-serving pouches. I typically use the big bag, but in case I use a single-serve stick in a race or a long training run where I need to refill my bottles, the sticks are actually easy to open. It's a miracle. We've all fumbled with drink mix pouches that are impossible to tear open on the run. Is there anything more frustrating? Well, Gnarly somehow solved for that too. So go grab some Fuel 2.0 drink mix at gonarly.com. Use code FREETRAIL15 for 15% off your purchase. Gonarly.com. Use code FREETRAIL15. Okay. So at long last, let's start talking about the race itself. You (laughs) arrived in the Valley knowing that you're in some of the best shape of your life. And you went out at a very hot, aggressive clip, especially 
I mean, in a style that I don't personally like associate with your Katie Scheid's style of racing. So talk about the strategy at UTMB this year. I mean, you're in great fitness, but how are you thinking about the race execution itself and what led to the aggressive strategy? Um, yeah, I just felt really calm. <laughs> I think I had emptied all of my emotions the previous day <laughs> and was just like, I have no emotions left. I just want to run and not deal with anything anymore. So yeah, I felt good. And I told other people this after the race, like, yeah, you know, I just felt really good. And I just wanted to run like that because that's how I felt. And people were like, oh yeah, but you know, you always feel good at the beginning of a race. I'm like, yeah, but I've done enough races and I know my body well enough that I felt like good beyond the normal good at the start of a race. Mm -hmm. And I know that this section to like Hontamine is it's normally where I would consider myself to be less strong because it is really runnable and really fast. And I would put myself more in the like hiking and descending category. And I was like, you know what, if I feel good here, it's the part, it's the part of the race where I probably would lose the most time. And I'm just going to go with it because after I know that I'm like strong in the other sections and yeah, I mean, I questioned it a bit. I, I was having second thoughts and I was like, no, I'm just, yeah, I'm just going to do it. I, yeah, I've already done the other thing. Were you getting any feedback from your crew or from people out of the course? Cause you, after coming through, you know, Le Contamine, the Col de Bonhomme, Le Chapeau, you started putting fairly large margins into Courtney DeWalter's splits from 2021. Were you getting feedback? And like, did you know that you were on sort of like a historically fast pace? No, no, I didn't. Um, I didn't know like where I was in the field. I had some of the camera runners making, or a lot of French people I saw were making jokes like, Oh, you want to like do the night part with jean Like, so I was like, okay, he must not be that far ahead if they're making this joke. But I didn't think I was, I still was like, I'm not that I, there's no way I'm that close to them. Um, and then when I came into Lake Hontamine, I looked at my watch and I remember, so Esther um, from the TNF team yeah. was crewing me in Lake Hontamine. Esther Kendall, and shout out. Yeah, yes, great job, Esther. Uh, she, yeah, I remember she was in my room before I walked to the start and I remember telling her, okay, yeah, I'll be there like around 9, 10 because that was the time I had kind of whatever put in my spreadsheet. And I looked down at my watch and it was uh, 10 of nine. And I was thinking, oh, well, I hope that she's there because <laughs> I am 20 minutes early. But actually, I learned after the race that they changed a small part of the course there. So normally you do this kind of tiny climb on a hill next uh, to the aid station. Yeah. Um, so I think everybody was somewhere between five to 10 minutes. That, that actually explains a lot for not only yeah. your race, but for others. Yeah. Yeah. So I was probably 10 minutes ahead of schedule, not 20 or or 15, something like that. But yeah. So when I saw that time, I was like, Oh, hmm, hmm, well, I still feel good. So I'm just going to keep going with it. And yeah. Yeah. So I was doing the English commentary sort of through the European night 
from my basement here. And uh, so I got to watch much of, I got to watch your whole race, but I got to actually provide the color commentary for, you know, your traverse between basically Lake Contamine and Cormier and beyond. And uh, got to actually witness your aid station transition in Cormier and it quickly became fairly evident that it was like kind of turning into a, a two woman race at the front. I mean, you were way off the front, but Marianne Hogan was solidly in second and not that far back. And your aid station transition at Cormayer was, I think a fairly important moment. And uh, maybe just to provide my two cents and sort of what I said on the live stream was, I mean, you took your time there. You spent probably eight or nine minutes in Cormayer. And then Marianne came through and was in and out in like two or three minutes. And so immediately it sort of took six, seven minutes off you. And then it was after Cormier and the between there and the Grand Colferre that Marianne really made up a lot of time on you. And it seemed like you were having a low point. So maybe take us through that section. Maybe if there's anything worth mentioning in the aid station transition itself, if you're starting to feel it there. And then like what what led to that sort of low point? And, uh, you know, talk about feeling the presence of Marianne coming up behind you. Yeah, I also watched, I saw like a clip of me at that aid station and I was like, oh, wow, this looks not well organized at all. <laughs> um, but I think it was also, so to put some more context in this, I met Coop in person for the first time when he came to give me a COVID test. So um we like didn't, I we've talked on Skype, but I did. It's different to meet someone in person. And then he also had been crewing Abby Hall um, for CCC. So he, that's why he wasn't in Lake Contamine. And so that was kind of like the first time we tried to like, he crewed me. And because of the whole COVID fiasco, we hadn't had that much time to go through like how the aid stations would play out. And yeah. I think in the future, I'll like, I think I would need to go through a bit more like how we should do things together because I, when I watch myself, I'm like, wow, I'm in like total zombie mode. I don't know what, like, what am I doing? I am, I'm being so inefficient because I think your brain is doing this game where it's like, Oh, let's take time. We're sitting down. And, but actually you should be like doing things more yeah. efficiently. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's, I also thought that I had this like huge gap. So I was kind of like, Oh, well, whatever I can take some time. Um, and I had already started having some stomach stuff going down into that aid station. So I wanted to be sure I like had everything and was yeah, starting to eat something and feel better. Um, and yeah, she definitely took a ton of time on me on the uh, traverse from Bertone to Bonavi. And I knew, I kind of knew that was going to happen because I never have a good, good to like times there because it's really runnable um, and fast if you can run fast. And I knew she was like coming from Western States. So that was going to be more her terrain. Um, yeah. So I really wasn't surprised when she came up behind me. Uh, I was pretty dead in Arnova and puked a bit and was kind of zombie walking up Colfere and she came up behind me and I was like, all right, she's going to pass me, but she stayed behind me for a while. Um, and then passed me when we started going down and she was super strong. Like 
she was running so fast. I, I was really impressed and was like, okay, there is no way I'm going to see her again. She's like on another planet today. So like disrespect that and (laughs) try to get down. From a spectator's perspective, it was so cool to see the lead two women come over the top of the Grand Colferet together, even if she was maybe the stronger of the two of you at that moment. I mean, it speaks to the the depth and the increasing talent in the in the women's field. But I'm curious psychologically how that impacts you because it feels like it would have to be fairly deflating. When you're in the lead of the UTMB, I mean, it's a pretty amazing place to be something that every professional trail runner dreams of right and to get caught and passed at 100k when you're probably feeling pretty down already it has to be psychologically deflating is there anything like that maybe you drew on or like was there anything that helped you to sort of keep a positive mindset through that and stay engaged psychologically Um, yeah, I'd say there's a few things. First is that I wasn't, I like, I knew that I was in the lead, but in my head, it wasn't, it wasn't like I was thinking I was going to win. I was just like, I'm in the lead right now. I don't know, but it, it could, it doesn't mean anything right now. It just means I'm the first person right now. Um, and then when I came into Arnava, I was feeling so bad that I was like, I'm probably not going to hold this for very much longer. And, uh, yeah, after that, when I was at the Grand Colferet, I that's when things were probably at the worst. And all of a sudden, I saw a friend from here, like from the valley, who used to live here, which is a very small place. And she had hiked up to the Grand Colferet. I mean, I think we were there at eight or seven in the morning. I'm not even sure, but I think when I saw her, I didn't believe it was her first I was like wow oh she's there okay wow and just seeing somebody who had like started hiking at I don't know maybe four or five in the morning to come see you it was really it was really moving for me and I like grabbed her hand and she was like oh I don't even know what she said and I was just like so emotional in that moment I was like okay like Lori's here for me uh I need to move (laughs) (laughs) um and yeah that was like kind of the first thing that kind of like knocked some sense back into me yeah and then after that it was honestly just my ultimate goal, which was, I've said that like, on every interview, my ultimate goal was to finish without a headlamp. And I could, I could see that that was still possible. And so I was just telling myself like, okay, no pity parties. We're finishing without a headlamp. Like that's the goal. I don't care what place I'm in. I don't care like anything else. I just want to finish without a headlamp. And yeah, I eventually got down to Lifuli. And are you, ever the type of person who struggles with the existential I should quit demons because you know you in your two previous UTMB finishes you've already mentioned that they were sort of stubborn white knuckling affairs just to get to the finish line and here it would have been an easy opportunity to bail you know a lesser athlete would have said oh I'm not in the lead anymore I feel like shit you know this is stupid I'm gonna drop out do you ever struggle with that? And and maybe if not, talk about your psychology and how you manage to, you know, fight those demons. 
Yeah, for sure. I have those feelings. Um, I had it when, like when I was going down the coal for it, I was like, I think I'm going to have to stop. I just, I'm so sick. I, I'm dizzy. Like this is probably dangerous. Like what if I pass out? Um, but honestly I have those, like, I should quit the race feelings more in shorter races than in longer <laughs> races when you just feel like your body is going to explode and <laughs> you're like, Oh, maybe I should trip by accident. <laughs> then I can stop. <laughs> yeah, I'll just tell people I rolled my ankle. Yeah. No yeah, deal. exactly. <laughs> so yeah, I had that feeling, but only, only really once this time. Um, I actually, yeah, I don't really get that feeling that much because I just feel like for me, it would be harder for me to stop than to continue <laughs> suffering. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a good personality trait to have. And I think it's yeah, not that, always, not well, always. Yeah, not, not <laughs> always. But when you're a professional ultra runner, it's probably better than the alternative where you err on the side of caution too much and give yourself the excuse to bail at any site of adversity. So then maybe tell us sort of what you attribute to this low point and how you were able to rally. Like, was it a nutrition thing? Was it a pacing thing? Tell us uh, what, how you diagnose it and how you were able to turn it around. Yeah. So the first thing was that right when I got in the fully, I saw um, the, the guys who were following me like on the camera crew and they're all like close friends and yeah, they're, I was just really happy to see them. And one of the guys almost fell out of the van while they were filming. So I was kind of like distracted by watching all that and laughing. And I came into La Fouli, into the aid station. I was like, okay, I have to eat something because I haven't really eaten anything in way too long uh, because I was having trouble with sugar at that point. And I had remembered that uh, my friend, Cami Bruyas, who was second at UTMB last year, told me like a few weeks before, oh yeah, like when I got to La Fouli, I remember I ate some cheese and it like felt really good in my stomach. And I remember thinking, oh, Cammy, you're like so silly. Like there's no carbs in cheese. Why would you eat cheese? <laughs> <laughs> and I got there and I like looked at the table, which UTMB needs to step up their aid stations. They're pretty bad. There's like nothing interesting to eat. And I looked at the table and I was like, okay, there's some bread and some cheese. And I, that's just my hand grabbed it. And I was like, all right, we're eating this. And I think just having some real food in my stomach and also the combination of it, it's kind of when we got the sun again, we were kind of in the shadow on the cold for it and then coming into the sun. And it just kind of felt like, okay, everything's starting again. Yeah. And that's when I just... Yeah. It's not that I like suddenly felt great. I just was like, Oh, I feel normal again. Wow. So then you, I mean, you sort of catch a second win. You say that it wasn't like you started crushing it, but you just were alive again, battling back from the doldrums of the early morning hours over the grand coal simultaneously ahead of you. Marianne was dealing with her own, issues and it's so rare i think in endurance sport to get caught two-thirds into the race and then to re-catch the leader and win so i would love for you to just kind of paint the picture of you re-catching marianne and overtaking her and 
putting yourself back in the lead of the UTMB again and how that impacted your psychology and your energy? Yeah, so I was getting splits from a lot of people because when when you are running between La Foulie and Champelac, you're kind of like in and pretty close to roads, you're on some roads, you go through some villages. So you see quite a few people. And I was getting a lot of splits, like 20, I think she had over 30 minutes on me at one point. Uh, and I was like, okay, at this point, I just really still want to finish without a headlamp. And um, yeah, and clearly she's just so strong right now and that's nothing I can control. So I'm just going to try to hold this position. And then I was pretty close to Champelac and I heard she was only like 11 minutes and then nine minutes. And I was thinking, oh, that's kind of weird. Maybe all these people are giving me wrong splits. And then when I got into aid station, Coop had like a timer on when she had just left or when she had left. So, so I knew you need a reliable was, resource like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it was legit. So yeah. I was like, okay, uh, clearly I've made up some time, but I still, I couldn't believe that I would ever pass her because I, when I had seen her pass me, I was like, she's just, yeah, she's so strong that, that I would have to be sprinting to catch her. Um, but yeah, then. I was able to, yeah, I, I took each aid station pretty calmly um, and just got in and out and yeah, wasn't really thinking about, I, I feel like people ask me, oh, the battle, but we weren't like battling. It just, but, I, but I'm curious about that too, because like, did the competitive spirit reignite? Like when you knew you had a shot of catching back up to her, it probably gave you a little bit of extra energy or like the competitive psychological edge again. So tell us about the actual pass itself and, and what was going through your head. Yeah. I mean, I didn't think I was going to catch her until I saw her. Mm. I just was going at my pace, like giving it like fast, but in control. And then when I saw her, I was like, okay, I can probably pass her because I just made up all of that time. And when we started going down, we, I caught her exact same way that she caught me, like right before the top of a climb and then started going down and passed her in the downhill. And I had seen that she was like struggling a bit over some rocks and was thinking, okay, well, it seems like she's having some trouble in the downhill. I'm not sure if she's like actually injured or if she just has sore legs. Uh, cause in the past I've actually like walked all of those downhills. So I was surprised I was even able to run and yeah, when I, I passed her, I was thinking, okay, she's probably going to run behind me. Um, but then she didn't. So I just took off and yeah, then I never saw her again. And I was getting splits after that. She was quite a bit behind and that's when I felt a bit less stressed yeah. <laughs> and was yeah, like, okay, I think fun. I have a, it's comfortable enough. It's funny because that section between Champelac and Trient was kind of critical in the men's race too, because that's where Jim sort of had his little implosion and was overtaken by Killing and, and Matthew. And then also where Marianne had issues and you were able to catch back up. So that, I don't know, I just, for me as an observer and as somebody who's done the commentary now multiple times, just like trying to help people understand the race and the course, just like getting through Champelac is critical, you know, and if you can get there feeling like you still have some life in your body, <laughs> you're in a good, good space. And if you get there feeling like you're dead, like you're really screwed. So 
It's just yeah. in my head. If once you, once you leave Champagne lock, like it, you are for sure going to finish the race. I know that's not always true, but in my head, it's like, okay, I left Champagne. Like, Boy. yeah, I'm yeah. going to finish because you see your crew so much after that. It feels like it's yeah. like every two hours you see them. <laughs> yeah. So any highlights between overtaking Marianne and getting back into the lead and the finish line that you want to share? I mean, obviously you started getting splits that made you fairly confident that your lead was secure enough. Maybe just give us the the story of like, you know, arriving back in Chamonix. What does it feel like to actually win the race? Because the vast majority of human beings on earth will never get to enjoy that feeling. Yeah, it was pretty, it's still surreal. Like I was watching this clip this morning and I was like, wow, I just can't even believe that that's me. Um, I, I was, I mean, you just ran a hundred miles, so you're pretty tired. So I was trying to get to finish to sit down. I also wanted to like high five people. I saw people I would have loved to like stop and hug for a long time, but then you're like, okay, I really need to just get there so I can be done. Uh, yeah. And then at the, at the end, it was also a little bit weird because you're, of course I was just like so happy, but then Jamal also didn't finish. And so it was kind of this balance of like, okay, I'm, this is, yeah, probably could be the best race of my life, but he is having like the opposite experience right now. And yeah, just that was hard to kind of manage in the moment. Like I felt kind of maybe I shouldn't, you know, you feel like, okay, maybe I shouldn't guilt too happy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you about that because I mean, in a couple in a relationship where you're both professional athletes on the rare occasion, you might both have magic races. I mean, you both won at Valderan in very convincing fashion. And now at UTMB, seven weeks later, you win the most important race in the world. Germain's got COVID. He doesn't, he drops out halfway through. I'm, is there, I'm sure, you know, he's obviously very, very happy for you also, but there is the mixed emotions of maybe feeling a tinge of, of guilt, knowing that uh, he didn't, he's not enjoying the same feeling that you are right now. How do you guys manage that? And, And what has it been like? over the last 10 days as you've come back home because Jermon also posted like my season's not done now. Usually it would be done, but my season's not done. Talk about any of that stuff. Yeah. The first the days just after the race were really hard because it was a time when it would have been great for us to be able to be together and just like deal with all those emotions together. But I needed to be able to do like media stuff the next day. So um yeah, we couldn't be together. So, um, yeah, that was tough, but now it's fine. And the ultimate goal is, uh, his next race. So that's, yes. that's the focus in the yeah. house <laughs> where, where you can play the support role. It'll be great. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious about who the people were, cause you know, when you watch your finish and then you sort of go back out into the crowd and you're sort of like giving big hugs to people Were your was that your family? Like, did they make it to UTMB? Were they able to witness your victory? Uh, yeah, I was giving, 
if you saw me run like all the way back down, yeah. that was um, Jamal's parents and his sister and her son uh, who were there to support us, which was, yeah, they were like, it was hard to find people. And I like caught eye of them and was like, oh, cool. Someone <laughs> like people that are, yeah, they're a huge part of what we do. Um, we really wouldn't be able to manage everything without them. They're, they're like always in the background. Uh, yeah. I don't know, selling things or bringing us food or yeah, kind of managing all the background stuff. There's a touching thing because you could see just the pride and emotion in their eyes. And yeah, I don't know. I just, I'm a sucker for that type of stuff. The, the post-race hugs, like who are those people? What's their story? How are you guys connected? So super, super amazing. So also one of the things I'm interested to just kind of get your take on, I mean, obviously you're not somebody who's, you know, brags about themselves, but like you, you've now added your name to the history books of the sport, you know, and you've sort of like, of course, there's a great tradition of American women who have won UTMB, Chrissy Mayle, Nikki Kimball, Courtney DeWalter, Rory Bozio, now Katie Scheid. What does it feel? And I mean, beyond the American winners, like what does it feel like to just kind of be a, the champion of the race? Yeah, it feels good to be part of that and to like continue that tradition, I guess. Um, it's still a bit, yeah. It's still a bit surreal, honestly. Um, I don't, I, this has been a goal for so long. It's not that I just like, it's not that this just happened. Like I've been focused on this for a long time and it almost feels less real because it's something I've thought about for so long. It's like, oh, it happened. Okay. Wow. Um, now what? <laughs> yeah, I've done exactly. my PhD. I want UTMB. <laughs> I'm 30 years old. I guess I just retire now. Is that your mentality? <laughs> no, now there's other, other big goals. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> but speaking... it's just weird to like kind of cross this huge goal off. Like, yeah. Yeah. So, so speaking of which, speaking of big goals, and we'll make this the final question. I'll let you go. Craig Thornley forwarded me an email exchange that is going to make American trail runners very happy so can we please break news here on my podcast about what i'm talking about there and what you're maybe thinking about next season in terms of crossing off big goals yeah i accepted the golden ticket to western states so yeah i gotta work on my running game <laughs> <laughs> yeah well maybe uh just quickly tell us how you're you're feeling about that and i don't know like i i guess it's probably too early to say but i mean this is a good opportunity to transition the focus to something else after three finishes now at utmb i'm sure you still feel like you can improve on that course if you were to cut out that probably four or five hours of feeling terrible you could run faster and potentially have a chance of breaking the record on that course. But um, maybe talk about how Western States fits into your athletic career and the goals that you're setting for yourself at this point. Yeah, I think for me, Western States is a pretty exciting goal because it's so different than anything I've done before that it's sort of like going in blind. Like I have no idea what to expect. I've never been on the course. I've never been to the event. Um, so it's just going to be like all new territory and 
I'm excited to do a big race in the U.S. I've actually never been to like, I did the speed goat in 2015, I think, but otherwise I haven't done like a kind of big U.S. race. And yeah, I think it'll be fun to be kind of in the American, the American world again. (laughs) Well, we can't wait to have you. Well, Katie, thanks so much for taking time to come on the pod. Congratulations on winning the race. And just the way that you did it, I think was really impressive to go out just like guns blazing, taking a big risk to fight through a massive low point and then to battle back and still run a historically ridiculously fast time on a very challenging course. It was very impressive. So congratulations to you. Give my best to Germain and uh, look forward to catching up soon. Thanks. Yeah. He's wanting me to come help make dinner. (laughs) (laughs) Tell him, sorry. (laughs) I'll tell him it's your fault. (laughs) My my bad, Germain. All right, Katie. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Thanks so much to Katie. What a champion. If you don't already, please go follow Katie on Instagram. I have a link to her profile in the show notes, along with a link to her Strava activity from UTMB. It's got like 90,000 kudos on it or something. Absolutely incredible. So, so inspiring. And a big heartfelt thank you to our sponsors for making the Free Trail podcast possible. If you'd like to support us, supporting our sponsors is a great way to do so. Speedland. Visit runspeedland.com. Grab a pair of the SLHSV before they disappear from the face of the earth forever. Gnarly Nutrition, go gnarly.com. Use code FREETRAIL15 for 15% off the order of the best nutrition products on the trail running market. I also linked to the Gorge Waterfalls event over on Ultra Sign Up. Reminder, if you want to run the 50K, you need to add your name to the lottery right now. And if you want to run the 100K or 30K, registration will open on September 18th. Play fantasy with us this weekend. Pikes Peak Ascent, Run Rabbit Run, fantasy.freetrail.com this weekend and stay tuned for a free trail state of the union next Monday. Until then, love you so much. Bye-bye.